Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Hey guys, welcome back to Vertical Momentum. I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, thank you so much once again for being a part of my journey and for letting me uh, be a part of yours. Guys, this is going to be a fun episode. We're going to be talking about what is capitalism and is capitalism dead with my brother, Dale. But first, I want to say, um, I want to thank our sponsors. As you guys know, we came out with our own coffee. We came out with our own T-shirts and swag, and this is something new that we just came out with. Uh, it actually will keep your or your drinks cold for 24 hours. And um, if anybody buys any of the swag from our, our, our shop, 22% goes back to help veterans and first responders struggling with mental health and also um, homelessness. And the last person I want to thank, but not least, is Maxwell Soaps. Guys, if you know me, if you know me, you know I'm a diabetic. I got diabetic itchy skin, and I can't use regular soap. But they make a soap that's detergent free, and um, it's amazing. I don't get itchy or anything. And for every bar of soap that they sell, they give one away to help clean up the streets of Los Angeles, California. So uh, if you love soap with a mission, don't be nasty. Order yours from Maxwell Soap. Guys, like I said, if you're if you're a business owner, which a lot of you are, you're going to want to listen to this episode. Dale, my brother, what is going on? How are you? Hey, good afternoon, Richard. Good to have you here, to be here as your guest. How are you doing today? Um, this is a great day. This is Friday, the 15th of April. It's tax day. A lot of people uh, concern their lives with this particular day of event. Powerful impact on people. Well, you know, my goal is eventually to pay more taxes. That means I'm making more money. <laughs> so, you know, people are like, wait a minute, I don't want to pay more taxes. That means you're not making any more money, right? <laughs> right. So what is what is one myth about capitalism that people think? Uh, I think one myth that people think is that they believe they know and understand what capitalism is, how it works, and how it operates. It's something that if you were born in this country, U.S. of A, you tend to grow up and perhaps take a few things for granted. But if you stop and think more deeply about capitalism, you might reach a different conclusion about what you believe and what you think you know and what you perhaps don't know. Obviously, there have been critics and supporters of capitalism over many different decades and even centuries. And very vocal uh, uh, people who spoke out, historians, e uh, political thinkers, economists, the average person. And capitalism tends to take a lot of blame for different issues taking place throughout society. You know business failures, inflation, layoffs, etc. But I'm not sure if capitalism solely can take 
the complete plane for that. So that's what I'm interested in talking about and trying okay. to. So where where are you from? Um, where did you grow up, and how did it shape the person that you are today? Um, so I was born in Kentucky, near the Tennessee state line, a place called Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Yeah. So nope. many soldiers know about the 101st Airborne Division. A small city called Clarksville, Tennessee, is what I call yep. home. And my father was military, served in the Navy for 30 years, then retired. And my mother's from that area of the country. And we lived there for the first, I say, five or six years. Then we moved to California. Uh, we were stationed in San Diego. I lived there for about, let's say, five or six years, I'm still as a Navy brat. And from there, we moved to Florida. And each time, it's a different change of duty station. And throughout that time period, I have been exposed to different ways of thinking and looking and obviously adjusting. One thing about military brats, you learn to make friends quickly and easily and to adjust to your new situation. Yeah. And I grew up wanting to go into the military. I wanted to serve in the, my country. And I had an older brother who decided to join the U.S. Navy and follow in my father's footsteps. And so I told myself, I'm going to join the Navy too and see the world and travel and have a great life. When I got into high school, junior high school and high school, many of these students and my peers wanted to go to the military academy, Air Force Academy, Naval Academy. I applied for the military academy also. I applied for the Naval Academy, but did not get accepted. They wanted to offer me something called the Boost Program. And don't know if that's still here, you know, uh, in existence anymore. But at the same time, I applied for a Navy ROTC scholarship. And that's what my brother did. And he was accepted for that and went to college on that program. And as things turned out, I was also granted a Navy ROTC scholarship. For those comrades who were Army um, and West Point graduates, I also applied to West Point. I was accepted to West Point, but I decided to, to decline them. I did not want to break family tradition. Anyway, I ended up applying to ROTC uh, or to colleges which had ROTC units in different states. One of those was Nashville, Tennessee. And so I went to Vanderbilt University and uh, that's where I spent eight years. My goal back in high school was to be a marine biologist and do things that would help connect the Navy with uh, its operations. But as you know, there's no beachfront property in Nashville, Tennessee. So I had to kind of let that dream go. And I decided to major in say chemistry and minor in biology, more towards a pre-med major. And I've always loved medicine and of course, mathematics and science. And after I finished my college degree, I applied for a for medical school, was accepted again on a Navy medical scholarship program this time. And I went to Mary Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee. And the way those programs are set up, you have a one year payback for each year that your, uh, that your scholarship covers you for. 
So I had eight years to pay back to the U.S. Navy and serve as a physician. And after that, I could then leave active duty and um, resume my civilian life. Well, I had so much fun in the Navy during those eight years as a physician. I uh, stayed beyond the required eight years. I went into the reserves and stayed until, let's see, for almost 27 years and retired as a full bird, what you call a colonel, we call it captain, and the rest has been history. I then proceeded into private practice of medicine. In so take, take, take us to 2014. There was an incident that changed your whole perspective of life. Talk to us about that. So you might remember back in 2008 through 2010, the, the mortgage crisis and the financial crisis throughout the country. There were 40 million people or Americans who lost their homes due to foreclosure. When this took place, I was obviously paying, paying note and attention of these things, but didn't think that it would affect me. Well, I perhaps was wrong because in 2014, my home located in Macon, Georgia was also foreclosed on. And that left me with very, left me with, with a deep, um, bitter, painful experience. I felt it was unfair. I felt it was unjust. I thought it was unnecessary. And as a physician, I knew I could go out and get another job. I could start all over and I could continue. But I felt pain for those who did not have that opportunity. But what caused you not to make the payments on that house to foreclose? You know, life has many different curveballs. And that, in that particular case, there, it dealt with the issue, what's called property taxes. And my particular situation, I had signed with the mortgage loan documents, a waiver of escrow, which gave me the right to pay my own property taxes. That particular year, or leading up to that, I was not able to pay, I think it was like $9,000 for that year, property taxes when they were due. And so Georgia had something called the, uh, I think it's called the Property Tax Amnesty Program, which allows you to uh, create a installment plan to pay your property taxes accordingly. I signed up for that. I was compliant with all the property taxes being paid on that schedule and it met my financial needs at that time. Well, five months after being compliant, the mortgager decided to pay the entire property taxes all at once, maybe a full $12,000, okay? And perhaps some of next year. That meant my monthly payments would go up maybe $1,500 or $2,000. I said, you can't do this. I said, I'm under the state of Georgia amnesty, a property tax amnesty program. And so I tried to discuss this with them, phone, emails, letters to no avail. They wanted to have it their way. I said, okay, have it your way. I'll revisit this at another time. 
And as it turns out, they went ahead and proceeded with foreclosure. And uh, we ended up having to move from our home, which we, we had lived in for 18 years. We built it. And uh, I ended up coming to Florida at the time. And shortly thereafter, my wife, you know, joined me here in Florida. I decided to file a federal lawsuit and I was going to raise a constitutional challenge because there's a conflict between the federal statute, what's called Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act or RESPA, a federal law that governs mortgages and the conflict with the state law. The state of Georgia and its right to provide its taxpayer citizens property tax amnesty. I was going to raise that as the issue going forth in district court. I filed the lawsuit and during that time period, I'm busy working on a solution to address the problem that not only affected me and the people in the state of Georgia and the rest of the country, but I saw it as a much bigger, deeper problem. It went straight to the root and the heart and foundation of capitalism itself. What we do and how we deal with capitalism and its connection with the tax system. And so that was what took my journey and path to a different direction. So, you know, as we all know, you know, 2008 is when the crap hit the fan. Yeah, uh, a lot of people lost their homes. A lot of people got approved for houses that they should have never been approved for at all. Um, you know, like like somebody once told me, if you can't afford a dog, don't buy a dog. You know, same thing with a house. If you can't afford a house, uh, don't buy a house. <laughs> now, if, when we bought our house, you know, we used the um, uh, the VA system, and they were great <laughs> for us. Helped us out, amazing. And we put and we put the the whole escrow thing. You know, mm -hmm. we made sure that we threw the property taxes in there so mm -hmm. we didn't have to worry about any of that crap. So, you know, because a lot of people, they're going to look, they'll look at the, if they don't put the, um, you know, the property taxes in there, they'll look at, oh, my, my, you know, my bill may only be $1,200 a month. But right. they, <laughs> like I live here in New Jersey, um, I think our property taxes are about $1,000 a month. But, if, you know, if you don't put those two together, automatically and start getting used to paying that like you mm -hmm. said you know it happens you may get that amnesty but then all of a sudden bam you get slapped with a 10 or twelve thousand dollar bill and you can't pay it. you know it's easy to come up with maybe an extra two three hundred a month but twelve hundred a month it's right it's not gonna happen so do you suggest when you person buys a home to make sure you get your property taxes everything in one lump one bill uh, that's an excellent question. Um, I think there's a better solution. There, there's a better solution because whether you put it all in one bill or you have it separate and you pay it independent, you typically cannot control your future circumstances. There could be a job layoff. There could be sickness. The, uh, the bank could choose to foreclose on your property for some other unknown strange reason. In Florida, we have sinkholes. You may be forced to leave and some people may have two different mortgages. They can't sell the old home and they have to go to a new home. Yeah. And of course, we've heard of situations where you buy a brand new car, you pay cash for it, excuse me, you, you buy the brand new car, $20,000, you, 
you finance it, the moment you drive off the parking lot, it gets totaled. You still have to pay that car, even though you don't have it anymore. You may have insurance, but it may not cover everything. So to answer your question, I think the better solution is to rethink how you choose to buy the home in the first place. And by that, I mean that most people, when they look at real estate, they only see it in two, they, they see it in two dimensions. They see the house, the physical dwelling, and they see the land. That's called tangible property. I think they forget about the perhaps equally more important aspect of real estate, which is the intangible property. You see, every home, every property, as, as far as I am concerned, can be thought of as a triangle, for example. One triangle represents the land, the price you pay for the land, and the value of the land. The second triangle, or leg of the triangle, represents the tangible property, that's the physical dwelling of the house. And the third leg of the triangle represents the intangible property. Well, what's intangible? Intangible, by definition, is things that you cannot actually see, touch, hold in your hand, or pick up. It's invisible. And yet, the intangible value in real estate still exists. Case in point, look at the house that you currently live in, just any house, 123 Main Street. Let's say you paid $300,000 for it. Lovely white picket fence, brick two-story uh, on the on the, uh, the curb, right? Um, if you take that same house and you placed it on the beach, so it's beachfront property or on a golf course, would you pay more or less money for that same house, square footage and square acreage? Well, I know that, like, I we were looking at houses in uh, Hilton Head, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And for the houses that, you know, we're talking here, uh, beachfront homes, you know, you're looking at, you know, a million, a million and a half. So you're looking at almost twice what our house is worth if we put it in, on a beachfront. But then, like you said, if we built this, if we put the same house we live in now, that's almost 500,000 and put it in, say, parts of Kentucky or Tennessee, it's going to be half. Good, that's correct. You, so location, you, location, location. That's correct. That's beautiful. You, you made my argument for me, Richard. You take that same identical house, you put it in a different location or the worst part of town. And by, by nature, people want to pay much less money for it. And that location, therefore, says there must be something about the intangible value that people perceive regarding that house. And then the next question is, how much is that intangible value worth? What is the dollar amount? And that question, you can ask your real estate attorney, you can ask your CPA, ask your tax attorney, you can ask your financial advisor, ask the banker, ask the appraiser, you can ask the, the, the stranger next door. You'll get 15 different answers. You see, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's the value that you assign and attach to your property that is what constitutes the intangible value. For all I know, when you bought your house, it may have been zoned, um, uh, you know, both residential and commercial in its location, and you're planning to tear the whole thing down and build a 
10-story hotel and make millions of dollars because of its location, its pristine location. So for you, the fact that someone else thinks it's only worth 500000 you are looking at the piece of property, the actual real estate, the dirt, and what you could do at that location as a $10 million potential uh, source of income for you. Other people may say, I just want to look at the house and buy it because I want to live next to a certain uh, school or community or the proximity to my loved ones. So they're willing to pay extra compensation or money for that. So the intangible value, therefore, I think needs to be and should be considered when people think about and look at real estate. Unfortunately, when real estate appraisal is being done, the appraisals tend to only show a price for the land and a price for the physical dwelling. You know, maybe the fence, maybe the shed, they may throw in some personal property, but they don't typically show a actual line item dollar amount or category for intangibles. And the question is why or why not? Even though the uniform, I think it's called UPAP, which constant, which is the standards body that oversees the appraisal industry and the appraisers, they talk about uh, intangibles that the appraiser can choose to do or can include in their, their calculations. But it seems to me from my experience and knowledge, that's not usually done or attempted to be done by residential real estate appraisers. And the question is why or why not? On the other hand, if they had a commercial pro pro uh, property and there is a business associated with that commercial property, the land, etc., they often would attach a value to the intangibles owned by that business or associated with that business. What are intangibles? Again, most people only think about what they can't see or what they can't touch or feel. But in the legal field, Intangibles have an important legal meaning, patents, copyrights, trademarks, know-how, um, customer list, and on and on and on. Well, you know, well, you know when I took, my, I took a real estate course, just because I wanted to know the ins and outs of real estate. Mm -hmm. And um, I found, and we'll talk about the selling and the buying. I find that when a, when a family buys a home, it's based on the intangibles it's based on uh the emotions you know because there's there's a reason why when you walk into a house it's all set up for you it mm -hmm. smells like cookies yes. there's a reason why they do that mm -hmm. because of the intangibles but now also you know when a person goes to sell their home um the intangibles can sometimes work against them because now they're thinking you know I think my house is worth 300,000, mm -hmm. but when it comes down to brass tacks, their house may be only worth 200,000 mm -hmm. and they get smacked in the mouth because they think their house is worth a hell of a lot more because of their memories. Right, right, right. right. Mm -hmm. So is that what you're talking about like that? There, there, that, that adds the, uh, the same, that underscores the same idea of intangibles. Here's to, here's to, problem with stopping at that level of thinking. The problem is that, let's say you paid $200,000 for your house, 
over the next three to five, 10 years, the house increased in value so that it was now appraised for 400,000. You have a buyer, a willing buyer and a willing seller. He wants to, the buyer wants to give you as a seller $400,000 in cash for your house. You enter a contract, you sign it, you agree, I'll come back tomorrow, I'll bring the cash, you give him the keys, and it's a done deal. Then what happens, let's say, God forbid, lightning strikes a house that night, the house burns down completely to the ground. You and him meet the next day, and you're just as befuddled as he is. What happened to the house? The question is, do you still go through with the real estate transaction? Or do you still expect to give him the $400,000 cash for the real estate property? Or do you now give him much less? But more importantly, you only paid $200,000 for the house, right? Five or 10 years ago, it was now worth 400,000. What happened to your $200,000 in equity? Will the insurance company replace that? You may have had insurance on the property but it only tends to cover the tangible property. I don't know of insurance policies that cover the intangible. So the question becomes, if you therefore are at risk for losing all of your equity because of some very rare event, such as the house burns completely down to the ground, what do you have left to show for it? So my solution, which goes back to your earlier question about should you put all the property taxes in one uh, uh, bundle with the, uh, with the mortgage is to address that type of potential risk. But more importantly, it gives you a new way to think about capitalism and how it affects you, your children, your grandchildren, and future generations. Because if you take that scenario and you think about the fact that you as the property owner, you have what's called a bundle of rights, a bundle of property rights. They come a bundle of sticks. But if you go a step further, you would realize that you not only have a bundle of tangible property rights, you also have a bundle of intangible property rights. What might those rights be? You have the right to control what you do with your property. You have the right to build another room or addition to your house. You have the right to uh, create a swimming pool. You have the right to create an easement with your neighbor next door so that they can travel on your property or to and from off your property. You have the right to put up a solar dish on and on and out. You have the right to gift it, to donate your property, to yep. sell it at whatever price you want. Yep. Who has that right? I don't have the right. Your neighbor doesn't have that right. Only you as the property owner have that legal right. So in my situation, 2014, I call myself exercising my right to um, um, to exercise my First Amendment right, which is freedom of speech, right, and freedom to enter into a contract with the state local government to pay my own property taxes. The contract said I had the right through the waiver of escrow to pay my own property taxes. That was the agreement. That's a intangible property right. And when that right was taken away from me, that's when we had collision. That's when we had crisis. So this concept of intangibles 
this concept of contract created intangibles is very powerful because when it comes to real estate, that can be one of the most valuable asset that a person and a family owns for their entire life. And of course, they can use that in so many different ways. So you want to protect that and preserve it and be able to leave it to your family to continue. All right. So now I have a question to ask because, you know, we're talking about capitalism. Now, say me and you are neighbors, right? And we, we've been friends for a long time. Your house burns down. And a lot of people, they can't afford to rebuild. Mm-hmm. Like here in New Jersey, once Sandy hit, these people that owned houses on the beach, once it, you know, they hit and they got destroyed, they couldn't afford to rebuild. Okay. So there's capital capitalists like me that'll come in and buy your property, mm-hmm. add that because that that two hundred thousand again because mm-hmm. you know the bare minimum, and then I'm going to build a brand new house. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, but like now in New Jersey that same house that those people walked away from are worth like 1.5, $1.6 million because of some, because of somebody like myself or, you know, that's a capitalism and say, okay, you see the negative, but right. I'm seeing the positive. Correct. So I'm going to buy that house and, you know, rebuild. So, you know, talk about that, you know, the negative of, of capitalism, but also the positives of capitalism. Okay. So, the great thing about capitalism is that if you are creative, if you can think outside of the box, and if you are entrepreneurial minded, you can create a business and you can create inventions and you can do things that give you the legal right of property ownership. And if individuals were to take that aspect towards life more seriously, they may realize that they can make and use capitalism to their own benefit. I'm currently writing a book, a couple of books, both fiction and nonfiction, that talks about this idea of parasitic capitalism. And we can get to that at a, at a later time in our discussion or another segment. But the idea basically says that I don't think people really understand or know how to leverage or use capitalism and all of its full benefits. The title of the book, the uh, um, nonfiction is called How, a tentative title, How to Crack the Code of Capitalism, How to Legally Crack the Code of Capitalism Using Your Real Estate Property and Home-Based Business. See, one thing that COVID taught us is that there are many people who either lost their job, were laid off, had to start all over, and were forced to work from home. And during that downtime, they decided to create a home-based business. They maybe had no choice. When that happened, yes, when that happened, that was a huge shift in their thinking process and their day-to-day lifestyle and environment. What did I do about the kids in daycare? What do I do about school? So many different implications. Well, when you now look at that new lens and look at reality, and then you think about what the US tax code says about home-based businesses, you then say, well, how how can I reposition myself in this new reality so that I come out a winner? 
I come out ahead. If you look at history, ever since the early 1900s or even before, the, the majority of businesses in America, their balance sheets showed ownership of tangible assets, greater percentage-wise, maybe 80% of the balance sheet was ownership of tangible bricks and mortar, equipment, things like that, okay, machinery. And only 20% was ownership in intangible assets. Yeah. Nowadays, it's just the reverse, just the opposite. Nowadays, the corporate balance sheets, 80% of what they own is in an intangible asset, software, trademarks, copyrights, patents, licenses. And only and 20 there's a lot of companies that don't own anything. Uber doesn't own nothing. Mm -hmm. Amazon doesn't really own anything. So a right. lot of the companies that are out there now, you know, they don't own, DoorDash doesn't own anything. Right. They just right. have intellectual property. That's the key point. What they do own is intellectual property. And it's those intellectual property rights that generates the millions and billions of dollars for corporations. But if they can do it for corporations, they can do it the same thing for individuals. I'm in Orlando, Florida. Mickey Mouse, well, Mickey Mouse the character drawn that Walt Disney and his family, um, you know, created back in 1920s, maybe early 19, uh, 1910 timeframe. Who would have thought that that single simple drawing, if you will, would have launched a, you know, mega million dollar enterprise for all these years that is still benefiting the family. But don't forget, copyright, and which is an intellectual property, is good for the life of the author plus 75 years after the death of the author. In other words, if you write a poem today and you live for another 50 years, then you die. For the next 75 years, that copyright, if it's maintained and the fees are paid, are still is still owned by the estate or by the family, by the heirs. And they can use that copyright to build their business, to create more intellectual property, and to continue thriving and growing. So I can't overemphasize the importance of creating intellectual property that any person can do and therefore take advantage of the capitalist system and the tax code that we live in. That's important when I go back to the tax code because in the, tax, the current tax codes, if you have intellectual property, patent, copy, trademarks, you can amortize, that is take a deduction on your tax in, income tax returns over the useful life of that asset. 15 years is what the code requires. Let me just say very quickly, I'm not an accountant. I'm not a tax attorney. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a real estate broker. I don't have a real estate license. I'm not your financial advisor. So this is a big disclaimer that everything I'm saying and have said since we've been live on this recording and from, from now going forward is purely for educational and informational purposes. And you're advised to check with your own attorney, accountant, tax attorney, CPA, for their opinion. But I'll just tell you, I don't think that 
the professionals are necessarily going to have the final answer and don't necessarily know the answer to all questions. Why is that? Well, that's where the inventiveness and the, the, the realm of capitalism helps to show how powerful this concept is. You see, real estate professionals and appraisers tend to think, and they were taught, like I was taught back in third or fourth grade, that one plus two equals three. But we also learned that one plus two plus, let me say it this way. We also learned that one plus one plus one equals three, right? Now, in real estate, if you look at the land and you say that's worth $2 and look at the house and say that's worth $4, your total purchase price would be $6 because two plus four equals six. What I advocate is that if you think about the land as equal to, for example, $1 and the house being, for example, equal to $2, then the intangible property what you really love most about that property equal to $3, one plus two plus three equals $6. So you can see the difference between two plus four equals six and one plus two plus three equals six. That gets you to totally different ways of thinking about real estate and taxes and capitalism. All right. So now, because um, the people that I've been associating with myself um, and learning from, um, you know, years ago, they always said your house is your biggest asset. Yes. But like I had um, Sharon Lecter on from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the co-op. Mm -hmm. And we talked about, you know, your house is not an asset until you sell it. So um, a lot of people think, you know, I'm going to buy a house and I'm going to be, I'll be all right. But, you know, I was talking to a guy named Grant Cardone mm -hmm. and he says, I rent my house. I don't own my house because it's not making me money. My corporation rents my house for me. Mm -hmm. So please talk about sometimes how, you know, being a corporation or having your own business can buy your assets instead of you paying for your house and waiting till you're 80 years old to sell it? Uh, thank you for that question. Excellent. Um, according to the tax codes, uh, you can, if you, if you self-create or acquire an intangible asset, then, as I said, it has a useful economic life that can be determined. It can be placed into service the same year and used in your business or trade. And there's a acquisition price that was used to acquire or create the asset, the intangible. And under that, you can then claim your amortization deduction if you have a home-based business. If you do not have a home-based business, then the only thing that you might be able to claim is a deduction related to your tangible property. In that case, the depreciation on the physical structure. They do cost segregation, for example. How much was the air conditioner? How much was the, uh, the roofing? How much was the, uh, the water system? You know, they can break down each of those subunits 
and the the uh, the um, uh, accounting firms who do that type of work, of course, they charge you for that, but they will give you a, I guess, a table that says that this was the dollar amount, and this is what you can depreciate your uh, your tangible property for over a period of time, and take this amount of deduction. And so, therefore, I argue, and that's what the book tries to persuade individuals to consider that it's worth your time to create your own home-based business, create your intangible assets used in your business, use what you've created and which is in your home and take the deductions that you're entitled to take under the U.S. tax code and show that you are running a legitimate business so you can maximize your potential uh, profitability and reduce your tax liability or exposure. All right. So now I have a question because like I said, um, I'm running in different circles as, as I get older and, and getting more into the entrepreneurial um, space, you know, in the space. And a lot of people will say, you know, okay, I have $200,000 in uh, um, equity. And a lot of people would say, okay, you know what? I'm just going to sit on that equity where somebody that is, a capitalist or entrepreneur is going to say, all right, I got $200,000 in equity. How about I take $100,000 out, put it down payment on an apartment building and make that um, make that money work for me instead of it just sitting there in equity? What are your thoughts on that? So the question I have for people is what is the definition of equity? And as you alluded to, you only have equity when you sell the property. In other words, only when you, as the buyer, give hard cash, put it on the kitchen table, and the seller gives you the keys, do you realize and can claim the $200,000 in equity. Other than that, all you have at most is a contingent asset. He says contingent because you you very well are still waiting for the willing buyer to come and make you an offer that you're willing to accept. Unless until that day happens and you both signed an agreement, your $200,000 is just strictly money on paper. It doesn't exist. The moment you sign the contract between the willing buyer and seller and you accept their deposit, and the moment that that contract is memorialized, you now have created a contract-related intangible. You then can say, I can take this contract, that is, this is the, this, the seller, excuse me, the, uh, the buyer. The buyer now says, I own this contract. I can take it and I can sell it. I can dispose of it. I can flip the contract. I can go sell it to somebody else. I only paid $5,000 for the it's down payment. If someone wants to pay me $20,000 and take my place, then they can do that and they become, therefore, the legal, uh, have the legal right to buy your property. So going back to your example about if you got $200,000, why not take $100,000 and go buy a multifamily apartment complex? That's an idea. It can work. But how you, you make money, what they say in real estate, you make money going into the deal yep. as opposed to when you sell the deal, sell the property. Mm -hmm. So the way that that works 
And that's what I talk about. Uh, that's the part of the solution that I came up with. And I filed a patent in 2018 that talks about property taxes, property easements, and what's called property tax options and how to generate property tax refunds from the capital markets. And that alludes to the concept of creating an intangible related, excuse me, a contract related intangible, such as an easement. And if you take your $500,000 house, and let's say you pay $20,000 for the land, then the net purchase would be $480,000. If you use what I call the isosceles triangle concept or model, you can allocate half that amount or $240,000 to the tangible property. You can allocate the other amount, $240,000 to your intangible property. You decide how much the, you, you wanted to pay for the intangible. You know how much that curbside appeal, that white picket fence, that two-story brick house is worth to you. And because you have the right to do that, and because you have a home-based business, you then can create that intangible, in this case, for example, a property tax easement, and you can therefore carve out that. Then what happens if the house burns down? Well, the property insurance is there to protect the tangible property. It doesn't protect the intangible. So if your intangible asset or property has now been set aside or protected and preserved in the context of a easement, and if you choose to move to another state or city or location, according to my theory, you can take your, ease, your, your, your right and your easement with you, and it can be transferred to another property. So that's why I started the business that I did as far as the solution to address the problem of foreclosure. So if you are forced out of your home or you lose it, you can start your business all over in a different location or city or situation, and you can pick up where you left off again. That is a home-based business. And, you know, for me, I, like I said, I've, for the last year, I've taken a deep dive into digital assets, um, you know, and now everywhere you hear about, you hear about NFTs, you hear about, you know, all these digital, uh, you know, uh, right. like me, I have, you know, I have a digital book that's out right now. Mm -hmm. It actually hit number one on Amazon twice. Well, congratulations. It, it's, you know, having an evergreen product. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, a lot of people don't realize that if you put a product into out into the digital universe, you only have to make it once. That's correct. And you can make multi, multi, you know, it'll sell multi times. Mm -hmm. So a, a lot of people in the new age, this is the new digital age, they're moving away from brick and mortar mm -hmm. to having what we have now. Like, like you said, if my house burned down now, all I got to do is have my phone and I'm still in business. That's correct. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've, Powerful. You know, um, like when my dad, he passed away on uh, Valentine's Day this year. Oh, I was with my family for three weeks. Mm -hmm. And even though I wasn't physically working, I was still making money because mm -hmm. my digital products work mm -hmm. for me 24 hours a day, seven mm -hmm. days a week. Mm -hmm. so that's something like what you're talking about. 
Oh, absolutely. I'm a big believer in, again, what you created is a digital asset, i.e. intellectual property that exists in a, a electronic, you know, uh, format of zeros and ones. And so it's making money for you 24 seven for the rest of who knows how long, right? And the important thing about digital currency or Bitcoin and the blockchain technology, um, we are still in the early stages of understanding that. Yeah. But I'll, I'll point out and let your listeners uh, at least bring, bring attention to them that there are two important legal cases that are, have been looked at or are being decided. One case dealt with the um, CFTC, Commodities Futures Trade Commission. I think it was decided a few years ago. The name escapes me at this time. But the current active case that you may have heard of is the SEC v versus Ripple. Ripple is a type of digital currency. While the Security and Exchange Commission is wanting to rule that that digital asset should be treated as a security. Now, several several years ago, the Commodities Futures Trade Commission decided that a similar asset, I don't remember the details of the case off the top of my head, but it should be viewed and treated as a commodity, that is, as an option. And so you have these two federal <coughs> regulatory bodies who are trying to argue about what your digital asset, your book that you created, should it be treated as a security or should it be treated as an option? And that has not yet been decided. And because of that, a person can, and I suggest, go forward. Be as proactive as you can. Create your digital asset. Think about it as a digital currency, if you will. Use the blockchain to your technology to your advantage and be prepared to sell it and let it um, take a life of its own. And if you position your business and your, and your product in just the right way, using these two court cases as guardrails as to how you plan and operate your business, then you can perhaps take advantage of one uh, ruling by the uh, appellate court or the district court and the other uh, court case until this gets resolved because currently no one still knows completely how things will work out with the blockchain technology, digital currency, etc. But also I think something that you just said that I, I really appreciate is don't get married to one stock or, you know, like that's what, you know, Warren Buffett says, I'm not married. I don't have an emotional connection to any stock. Right. And I, a lot of people, you know, Oh, I'm just going to hold on. And then they hold on and then it shits the bed. Mm -hmm. And then you take a total loss because you were emotionally involved with that stock instead of, you know, saying, okay, this is what it is. It's an option or, you know, it's, it's, it's something, but it's not me. You know what I'm saying? A lot right. of people, and I think that's the same thing, you know, with their homes, they get emotionally involved. And then, you know, eventually, like for me, I know I'm probably never moving. Um, so, you know, they're gonna have to carry my dead body out of here. So <laughs> for me, I never think of my, you know, my house as, you know, my house, because you, like you said, you know, something, they could say something is priceless, mm -hmm. but if you're never going to sell it, 
right. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's right. Right. Yeah. That's right. So talk to us about your book and tell us about what you have going on today. So I, I told my wife years ago, never fall in love with bricks and mortar. And that level of detachment allows you to make both objective decisions and life decisions. What I'm, what I'm doing at this time, and I mentioned about the business, is that I'm working to create my team. I'm looking to bring people into my universe who wants and are interested in pursuing a certain goal. My goal is to help improve the concept and the understanding and knowledge of capitalism. And with that new knowledge that's created or acquired, hopefully it'll help position people for their future going forward. What do I mean that people don't quite know or understand what capitalism is and how it works? Here's an example. Think about how you, how the example of micro, microwave ovens and microwavable popcorn. If you had two microwave ovens, one oven had the label capitalism, the other microwave oven has a label real world. Inside the microwave oven called capitalism, you have a bag of popcorn and it's called capitalism. Okay. And the other microwave oven labeled real world. Excuse me, I said it backwards. In the oven labeled capitalism, there's a bag of popcorn called real world. In the other situations, just the opposite. The microwave oven is called the real world and the bag of popcorn is called capitalism. So the question to ask yourself and what the book is talking about is that which of these two scenarios is the accurate and most uh, uh, complete description of capitalism and how it works? Do the things that we do and say in our behaviors and our decisions, is that that's the equivalent of pushing buttons to program the microwave oven and create, hopefully, a beautiful edible bag of popcorn. So if you do that for the oven that's called capitalism, then the microwave bag of popcorn called real world, you want that to be ideal. You want all the kernels to be fully cooked and edible. You don't want them to be overburned or underburned. On the other hand, the opposite situation where the microwave oven is called real world and the popcorn is called capitalism. If you punch buttons on that microwave oven, taxes, the amount of unemployment you want this year, the amount of, of uh, you know inflation, the amount of money supply, and you program it for a certain amount of time, then you're hoping that the microwave bag of popcorn called capitalism is going to, again, make it fully edible, nothing overburnt, no burnt you know, kernels and no undercooked kernels. I argue that economists do not know which of those two models represents the real world and how it operates in terms of capitalism. I argue that government policymakers do not know which of those two scenarios is the correct model and uh, representation of reality. I argue that the average person does not know which of those two models is the correct one and representation of capitalism and how it works. Okay, because now one thing, 
I've noticed um, I do I every morning I, I wake up and I I do my walk I do an cardio and I'm always listening to um, stuff on audible you know I'm always listening to business podcasts but as I'm walking past people's houses I see Amazon boxes everywhere yes and um, when you talk to a lot of people the same people that are ordering from Amazon mm-hmm. are hating on Amazon. When, you know, somebody asked me about Amazon, I'm like, well, I have products on Amazon. Right, right. So I'm actually making it work for me. Exactly. So is that what something, what you're kind of what you're talking about? Uh, yes. Let me give you a case in point. So in the patent, I talked about what's called a property tax option. If you know anything about stocks, uh, they say Amazon stock. It very well uh, maybe selling today for let's say three thousand fifty dollars. Okay, I don't know what the latest is, but Amazon may very well have options. What's called put options and call options for its publicly traded stock. And the way the options market work, as I understand it, it each option has a strike price. Let's say the strike price is exactly three thousand dollars, and that's what the price of Amazon stock is today. If you buy an Amazon call option, you hope and expect that in the future, the price of the Amazon stock, the share price will increase by a certain amount. And there's an expiration date of the call option that says good for one year. On the other hand, someone else may choose to believe that the price of Amazon stock, the share stock is gonna decrease over the next year. So they may choose to buy what's called a, a, a put option they expect the price to go lower at some point in time we will see what the real, what reality shows the price will either increase high enough that it, that the option can be sold and the person can make a profit if they exercise their option or if it does not go high enough or it goes lower then the option would lose value you don't make a profit now if you bought a three thousand dollar put option and a $3,000 call option at the same time, then you just sit back and wait. And sooner or later, the price of the share of stock will increase or decrease. And if it goes high enough, more than the amount that you pay for each of those two options, then you are going to make a profit. I take the exact same concept and I put it in the context of property taxes. In other words, if the property taxes you paid this year are $1,000, last year, $1,000, you might choose to buy a property tax option, put and call option of $1,000 or $1,050, and you buy them both at the same time, and they both expire in one year. And you know within one year, you're, you're going to get another annual property tax bill. And you just sit and wait for the bill to come in the mail. And when it does come in the mail, if the amount of the property taxes are much greater or even lower than what your strike price is, you exercise one of those options, you let the other one expire, and you take that as profit. So you pretty much have protected yourself no matter what the property taxes do. And you've been in New Jersey, I see between New Jersey and New York, you've got $9,000, maybe $10,000 property taxes each year. The owner of the Empire State Building, do you know what their annual property taxes are? 
I looked it up. It usually runs about $40 million per year. Well, that's pretty significant. And it's significant because in 1933, when the Empire State Building was built, it only cost about $40 million. And then over this time period, even though the building is in the same location, it's in a, it, it probably has not added much floors any higher than the original building, et cetera. But over that time period, the value of the building to re the replacement cost is now $543 million. And so their annual property tax bill is $40 million. That's the amount it cost to build the entire building back in 1930-something. Well, if I were to buy a property tax option on the Empire State Building for its property tax, then I would say, okay, what's the probability of the property taxes of that building increasing to, let's say, 41 million next year? What's the probability of the property taxes dropping down to 39 million or 35 million or 30 million? So you know that options have different strike prices and based upon the strike price that you purchase, you're paying a certain and different premium amount. And the difference between the buy side, the, 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 the purchase price of the, of the call and the same uh, purchase price of the put option for the same strike price creates the spread. And that uh, price difference is profit. So doc, how do we find you? How do we support your mission? How do we eventually find your books? Uh, the best way to reach me, my email is dale at pcapitalism, that's P like Paul, the word capitalism.com. That email comes to me, and I'm also the CEO of a nonprofit called Eden Community Ventures located in Baltimore, Maryland. And um, I can be looked up either through Eden Community Ventures or my company 330pi.com or the email address I gave you, dale at pcapitalism.com, and of course, LinkedIn. Um, and I love LinkedIn. I think that's where I think where we connected. So I want to just thank you guys. I want to thank the audience guys. You know, um, I'm a, one thing that I love that Oprah Winfrey said, he always said that if you want to get better yourself, you have to help others get better. And that's what this whole show is about. It's all about paying it forward. So I want to thank you guys for always being a part of my journey. And thank you for letting me be a part of your journey. I want to thank our sponsors. Like I said, if you guys love having tumblers, that, but you're getting tired of your coffee being cold half hour before it, make sure you pick that up. And also, guys, if you know anybody that has diabetic itchy skin or is just tired of using soap that with detergents and, and, and unnatural products, check out Maxwell Soaps. Um, they're doing amazing things. Yeah, I just want to say I'm so appreciative of you, and I'm grateful that now you are in a part of my Thank you so much, Richard. It's been my pleasure to be your guest on your show. I look forward to another future discussion. All right, my friend. Well, have an amazing week. God bless you and your family, and enjoy this holiday. Guys, remember the reason for this season. All right. Yeah. Love. Thank you for your service. Take care. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.